what do you get when the audacious and the therapist collide? A crash course in unpolished therapy. Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca aren't afraid to spin out of control, tackling all the tough talk. Their weekly sesh meets at the corner of Audacity and Advice, where their wheels and yours get turned upside down. Hey guys, happy Wednesday. It's Rachel Silver Cohen and Dr. Boca. We're ditching the couch. We're grabbing the mic. We're breaking down all the wreckage. It is another episode of Unpolished Therapy. Dr. Boca, it's nice to see you on the corner of Audacity and Advice. How are you? I'm doing great, Rach. I wasn't sure I was going to make it here today. I literally can't even tell you what I did this weekend. I don't know if you like scoped out my Facebook, but I did something so outside of my comfort zone this weekend. And I didn't know if I would live to tell about it. But I'm here. So here I am. Okay, well, you're wetting my appetite. So do tell. So okay, it's like going to be I'm talking Chinese to you. I know because as soon as I say it, I'm going to look at your face and it's going to be like, what the fuck? But for my I know a little Mandarin. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. I don't. So this is going to be awful. But that aside, so this weekend was my birthday. Happy um, birthday. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And my husband planned a whole weekend at... It's going to sound so romantic when I say he planned a whole weekend at... And then I put the next part on and you're like, holy shit. Land the plane, Dr. Boca. Land the plane. We were at the Tortuga Music Festival. Okay. And for those of you who don't know it, Rachel, you being one of them, it is a country music festival in Fort Lauderdale. And we spent the weekend literally doing shit I don't do, which like the beach in and of itself, like the sand and everything. But I've never seen so many people on one beach before. And I learned this really interesting thing. These young people, and there were a billion of them, they don't clap. It was the craziest thing. Like our generation claps, like when they finish a song, these kids throw their hands in the air and they go, right? But they don't clap. It was, it was very crazy. I don't know if you're even aware of that. But then the other thing I noticed was that people were drinking water out of cans that look like beer. So it was like very interesting to me. And I made note of that. I do want to talk a little bit more about that. But I also saw more ash cheeks than I have ever seen in my entire life. Like literally these girls' asses were hanging out of their bikinis. Like I don't even think they were wearing anything. It was a style that, thank God, that trend did not exist when I was younger. And what I also noticed is how drunk and high and crazy these people are. I'd never seen so many drunk people as animals as I had this weekend. And I, by the way, I went to college in Wisconsin. Like, I know drunk. This was not anything I've ever seen before. Okay. So first of all, I'm so turned off by this whole introduction. <laughs> I mean, happy birthday. And to the listeners <laughs> out you. there, I hope you all had a, took a little moment out of your time last week to wish Dr. Boga a happy birthday. That being said, though, I went to GW. So if anyone gets like the award or the degree on partying and drugs and alcohol and all that, my degree is somewhere in a box somewhere on that. <laughs> but now as an adult, I can't really wrap my head around young people or even old people for that matter who get that fucked up. I'm just going to say it. Maybe it's judgy of me. I don't know. But the idea, even all the drinking and the drugs and all that would drive me crazy. But then you couple it with being in the sun. I stay away from the sun because I'm paranoid of the sun and I don't want wrinkles. But now you marry the two together and there's nothing that's more of a turnoff to me than that. 
So, I know. I know, but I got to tell you. I to tell you. I hope you had a good time, but actually, I'm glad I wasn't invited. Well, it actually was fun. We did have a good time, but my husband and I and my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, we were like the old sober people. And I was with my kids, so it was very easy to act accordingly. But I was amazed by it. And it got me thinking how much of our adolescent years, how much of our young adult years, we really do surround ourselves by alcohol, drugs, substances as part of the good times, the bad times. It's everywhere. And it got me just kind of thinking like that, that canned water, the concept of that. I could imagine that somebody who drank wants to fit in. So doing water in a beer can kind of looks cool. And there, there was something about it. But for me, it was like, oh, that's so weird drinking water out of a can, right? Like I was expecting it to have like a different consistency or something. Anyway, all of this is to say that A, I got out of my comfort zones. I was very proud of that. B, it was very eye-opening. But C, most importantly and relevant to today is that I have this person and I want to call him a friend, but we met under such interesting dynamics that he's become somebody in my life and he doesn't even understand the magnitude of what he's become, who has gone through the process of addiction and has gone through the journey. And not only has he gone through the journey, but he wrote a book about that journey. And he has taken that experience and incorporated it not only into a book where somebody else going through it, he kind of puts out there the process that helped him change, but then he used the growth that he experienced to now coach other people through this process. And I was like, who better to talk to about all of this than him? And so I brought him on today, and I hope you will indulge me, Rach, but not only is Adam this amazing human being, but just an aside, it is literally why we do our podcast was because of a conversation that I had with Adam when I barely even knew him. And he inspired me to do this based on his experiences of writing a book and being creative and going outside of his comfort zone and all of that. So without further ado, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Adam, but I just wanted to give him that accolade because we would not be sitting here, Rach, doing this podcast if it weren't for his little motivation and his little encouragement. So I really want to just tell you about Adam Javelin. So Adam wrote a book called Lotsaholic, and I'm just going to share a little bit about the book and then tell you a little bit more about Adam. At 30 years old, Adam had everything a successful businessman is supposed to desire. He had a beautiful wife, a newborn baby, a gorgeous home, a sculpted body, a steady career. But instead of being happy, he was in the grips of alcoholism and addiction. His family intervenes and Adam's taken to the Hanley Center or his world is changed forever. In rehab, he meets spiritual teachers, doctors, psychiatrists, and other alcoholics and addicts that lead him to find the strength to confront his disease. Adam's journey leads him to face not just alcohol and drugs, but all of his addictions and dependencies. More than just any other recovery story of descent and redemption, you will see and hear and feel not only in the book, but today on the podcast, what Adam experienced along his healing journey. Perhaps most importantly, Adam shares the very tools and secrets that have helped him overcome his addiction and live the life that he had only dreamed about. And he is going to show you in that book how he's done it and hopefully talk about it here. So Rach, with Adam on here, I want to share a little bit about his journey as well. He is a highly sought after performance and life coach, corporate consultant, and keynote speaker. Adam has helped thousands of people over the years experience a joy for living even while under pressure or difficulty. 
his unique positive energy, and it is positive, compassion, and a gift to relate to others has influenced people from all walks of life, including leaders in the fields of health, psychology, entertainment, sports, business, and politics, as well as helping everyday folks fighting fears, alcoholism, and addictions to unleash their hidden Superman. His knowledge from helping to build, run, and sell a multi-million dollar corporation is invaluable. Equally important is Adam's sobriety and his experiences as an enthusiastic advocate of recovery. He has been clean and sober since July 14, 2006. Go, Adam. And he's also the creator of the Hero Project, a high-level coaching program where you become the hero of your own life. He also sits on the Institutional Review Board of the Hanley Center, which is one of the most successful and highly regarded addiction and recovery treatment programs in the United States. Adam does live near us in Delray with his family, and in his spare time, he enjoys fitness activities and is also a former bodybuilding champion. So without further ado, let me introduce to you, Rach, and to our listeners, Adam Javelin. Hey, guys. Lori, thank you. That was lovely. If I didn't know myself, I'd be impressed. Oh, you'd like yourself. That's great. (laughs) But I love you. Thank you. You're the best. And it's good to be on with both of you guys. Well, let me just tell you. First of all, Adam, I'm thrilled to have you here. And Lori, I got to say, that was some introduction. I hope Adam has a good sense of humor because as you were going on and on about all these amazing things about Adam, I need a drink. (laughs) 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 I mean, wow, that is some introduction and what a bio. My goodness. Adam, thank you for taking time out of your busy day and life to spend some time on the corner of audacity and advice. And Lori, thank you for tracking Adam down. Coincidence or not, I too have read your book, Lots of Holics. So I would love to jump in and let's get going. Let's kind of get to the meat and potatoes. And I'd love to hear your story. I guess to get going, we'll kind of see where this path takes us. Do you feel, Adam, when you sat down and you wrote this book, Lotsaholic, which I have to tell you is such a great name for a book. I say it tongue-in-cheek now because we are sitting here with someone who is a true recovered addict or sober, I should say. I don't know if if you're ever really recovered. I'd like you to touch on that. But I always kind of joke around that I gave myself my own named disease, if you will, that I suffer from now what-itis because I'm constantly, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Now what? Now what? Now what? So the name Lotsaholic is something that spoke to me. Do you feel as though sitting down and writing the book after you've gone through this journey was sort of like the dot on the I or the cross to the T in the whole process to kind of put pen to paper and share your story? Uh, It felt very cathartic. It felt like I was healing something within me. I really wasn't able to put my finger on until I put the words onto paper. And it actually helped me download the lessons that I learned in treatment in my recovery even more to my core, even more intrinsically, which helps me teach it. It's difficult to talk about unless you've experienced like what you guys have now done with your podcast, okay? It felt like something was calling me. It didn't feel like I have to do it. Or it didn't feel like I want to do it, I should say. It felt like I had to do it. Like something was pulling me and not pushing me, but pulling me to really put the words down on paper. So I get that. And I know Lori obviously read the book as well. Let's back up though. And if you can, in sort of like a cliff note version, take us through the path. Obviously this calling in a way is probably, you know, that silver lining, but Let's start at the beginning. Where were you in your life? What happened? What were you doing? Give us a little bit of a backstory for the listeners. Right before I got 
clean and sober. I'm running the number one lace manufacturing company in the world. I was third generation. There was a lot of pressure. My grandfather was the captain of industry. So the way I describe it to people is, you know, he was like the Joe Montana of lace. And then my father, second generation, was the cowboy of industry. And basically, he was the Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. And I had these two tremendous figures that I just didn't know if I could ever live up to. I was married. I had a kid. I would use drinking as my way to relieve stress or to relax. I couldn't wait to get home at night. I couldn't wait for the weekends. Training every day, exercising, making sure the body looked right, trying to be charismatic, trying to be a good leader. But inside, I was living a double life. I was suffering, hiding, lying, manipulating, uh, anything I could do to just get through the fucking day. So it's interesting, Adam, as you're talking about that, I use an analogy when I'm working with my patients about the hollow chocolate Easter bunny, right? It's over Easter, which is coming up, right? You go into CVS and you see all of these chocolate bunnies lined on the walls. And here I am, the Jew, right? Who is like so excited by like the look of this chocolate Easter bunny with the big blue eye and the perfect bow. You go home, you unwrap it, you're so excited to eat it and you take a bite of the ear and the whole thing freaking crumbles, right? There's nothing inside. You're putting out this illusion to the outside world that everything's perfect, but all you have to do is scratch the surface. And so what I do in my therapy work is we use the metaphor to fill the chocolate Easter bunny to make it solid. And it sounds like what you were doing was using the alcohol, the drugs, all of that to try to fill that emptiness inside. But what we know is if you squish liquid, it just drips out. Also, no pun intended with alcohol being a liquid, that it sounds like in the Hanley Center, I was reading this while you were going through rehab. What I was so inspired by was you literally were filling the chocolate Easter bunny, i.e. yourself with authenticity, with spirituality, with the mind-body connection, with understanding the insecurities and all of the vulnerabilities and all of that, which really what we see today in front of us is that solid chocolate Easter money. Oh, thanks, Lori. Yeah, you know, I was taught there and we could talk, we can go really deep if you want in this, but I had a God-shaped hole and I was trying to stuff it with everything else because God and I really didn't know one another. Or I should say I had no idea what that power was. So I was trying to fill this God-shaped hole with anything and everything and there's nothing that could fill it. Adam, I want to go back to something because I have a 14-year-old son and a 16-year-old son. More times than not, they think that they're 14 and 16 going on 42 (laughs) and 44 they're still kids at the end of the day. And what something that spoke to me in the book that I really, my, my mouth hung open, was that, that your dad came to you when you were 15 yeah. years old and asked you point blank, hey, Adam, how do you want to take over the business? Or will you take over the business? And I had to take pause with that because you have a teenager. And can you imagine that role reversal? That had to have been incredibly stressful for a lack of a better word or completely over your head to be presented with real grown-up questions and a trajectory of your life at only the young age of 15. You know, I look at it from so many different lenses now. At that age, I didn't know my ass from my elbow. You know what I mean? Who does? You know, I knew I wanted the next pair of Michael Jordan sneakers. I Mm -hmm. knew I wanted to sleep with this girl, Jill. I knew I wanted to. Like, I knew all (laughs) this stuff. But what I was going to do for the rest of my life. But I was aware enough to see that we were living in Boca Raton. 
and that we didn't have the blue, what I used to call the blue car in the station wagon anymore, but my dad had a BMW and a Lexus, and we had a swimming pool, and things were changing around me, and I knew, I kind of knew what my parents wanted to hear. You know, I knew what they wanted to hear. Now, looking back on it, I also do realize that my dad was offered a lot of money for the company, and he didn't know how to make this decision. So one of the things he was trying to see is, does his son ever want to, you know, it would help him to make this decision. Would his son ever want to take over this Mm. empire that he was building? But at the time, it really felt like I signed a deal with the devil. Yeah, I was struck by that part. And it was interesting. I think Rachel and I were struck by a lot of the same parts throughout the book. But to put that expectation or to even put that decision on a 15-year-old, like I viscerally got angry for you. It was like, how can you ask a 15-year-old what they want to do when they can't even decide what to do for dinner that night, right? And yet how much of all of your stuff hinged upon not just that decision, but this desire not to disappoint people and not to ruffle the water, so to speak. I don't think that's the saying, but I was angry that that expectation fell on you and that your parents expected you to make that kind of decision at that age. That's a lot of pressure. And I'm glad that later on, you kind of worked through all of that. I have a question, Adam. There's so much here and there's going to be so many questions, but you just tapped on something about the God hole inside of you. And our listeners, you know, they're from all walks of life, all socioeconomic statuses, all religions. And one of the things that my patients have said to me and I have struggled with is I consider myself a spiritual person. They oftentimes consider themselves a spiritual person, but they have not gone through something like Hanley or AA or anything like that. And they struggle with spirituality being different than religion. And the word God, how does somebody who's Jewish or how does somebody who doesn't believe in God, how do they get through that program. And I know you spoke a little bit about it in the book, but can you share it with our listeners how somebody can reconcile that through and use it as a strength through recovery? Well, I hope this story will will help somebody because this is what cracked the code for me. I was with a Catholic priest named Father Ron in treatment and he has me stick my arm in and all of a sudden he touches very gently on the arm. He points my forearm. He goes, do you see what I left there? And I'm looking at my forearm and I'm looking at the father and I'm looking at my forearm I'm like, father, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he does it again. And he goes, do you see what I left on your forearm that time? And, you know, I use humor when I'm uncomfortable. So I'm like, father, I'm Jewish. Maybe there's a disconnect. You know? <laughs> and then he does it again. He goes, you see what I left on your arm that time touches me. And I'm like, you know, father ways I heard about you guys. <laughs> And he turns off the lights and he takes out a UV light and he shines it on my arm. You can see all these purple fingertips glowing. And I'm just like in awe. Like I never even thought of it. And he goes, do you think that maybe that there's been a power all around you that you can't see, taste, touch, none of the five basic senses that has kept you here, healthy, going, protecting you, guiding you, and brought you here to me right now. And I'm staring at these fingerprints that were not there two seconds ago. And I was like, Father, I can believe. And he turns the lights back on and they leave. And I'm like, no, 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 do it again, do it again. <laughs> like it was a magic trick, you know? Right. But what happened was Monsignor Father Ron downloaded this Jew from Jersey into the matrix. He, he built a bridge where I can understand the concept Mm-hmm. of something higher, greater, and bigger than me, even though I can't see it, even though I can't taste it, even though I can't touch it, that it's there. 
So I use that experience with my clients or anyone I'm speaking to. I use the power of electricity. I even use the word faith with the power of electricity. Like if you go and you actually believe that when you go, you're going to turn the lights on, that they're going to go on, you have some form of faith. And I try to just make it very, very small, tangible, bite-sized, easy to digest pieces for somebody to start building this relationship with whatever they want to call it. Higher power, God, life force, Yahweh, Christ. It's really up to them. I think that's amazing. I was touched and moved by the relationship you had with Father Ron. And also, I think John, who was probably one of the therapists or your coaches in the center. I'm a big movie buff. So I love that you had a lot of analogies with movies. You just touched a little bit on The Matrix. So I remember that John was the Morpheus and you were the Neo, if you will. And I appreciated that. And I know we are strength in numbers. And when you surround yourself around the right kind of people that really want to help you dig in, fix whatever is backwards or clean it out and redo it, it really does help you grow. One of the things that Dr. Boca and I were moved by that we kind of spoke about prior is back to the spirituality piece and religion and how... Faith is faith is faith and believing is believing is believing. And it has nothing necessarily to do with what religion you are per se. We didn't think necessarily that it was a coincidence that when you go through rehab or therapy or you're now part of this community, if you will, the word group is literal, that you're surrounded, you're going to meetings, you're with like-minded people, and that's what carries you through, whether it's your sponsors or you then become a sponsor. I'm wondering if you can touch a little bit on what you learned, the lesson from Father Ron, or forgive me if I'm incorrect, if it was John, who taught you about happiness versus peace. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was John Diamond. So I'm in his chair and his I, I really, I could feel it, you know, mm. I feel it. He basically asks me, you know, would I want to be, he puts out his arms like this. So he's giving me two fists to choose from. He goes, do you want happiness or peace? And that was like an easy answer for me. I'm like, I want to be happy. Right. Know? I would have chosen that, which is why that this yeah. part of the experience was so palpable for me because I was like, shit, happiness, man. Shit, yeah. I'm, I'm good with happiness. Yeah. Like, keep going because you had a different experience. Lori, I'm you, right? I'm like, I want to be happy. Everything I do is just to be happy, right? And if it's this, if it's exercise, yep. it's a fucking from my wife. I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. You know what I mean, literally, like, you, you rip me open. I would say, I just want to be happy. Right. Yeah. So I answer him that. He goes, I don't think so. He goes, I think you want peace. And I'm like, you know, listen, I'm wrong. You know, I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure. I want to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> and he explains to me the difference. Uh, and basically, you know, he points to the fist of happiness. And he goes, you know what can make you happy, Adam? He goes, a new car. And I had just gotten a new car. Goes, but, but you know what's going to happen? Because eventually that car is going to become just a car and it's going to suck gas. And because you know what else can make you happy? A new home. And he does the same thing with a home, with a mortgage, with, you know, making sure the plants are okay. And then he does the same thing even with a baby, right? Like I had just had my daughter, but he was right. Like you know, you're sleepless nights and you're exhausted. And you have the formula and the, you know, is the baby monitor on, right? He's he like, happiness. Hey, he goes, you know what else can make you happy? A drink. Mm. Right. And what he was showing me was how happiness is very fleeting, mm -hmm. but to have peace, to be able to stay intrinsic in the middle of the storm, that doesn't matter. Like I even do with my clients, it doesn't even matter if you win the lottery 
right? You win the lottery, whatever it is, $25 million, you do not have to pop a bottle of champagne to celebrate. And if your mother dies, you don't need to drown yourself in Xanax and whiskey. Like you have a piece there that could, it, it doesn't matter the highs and the lows. To me, that's amazing. And I've always used a pole and the North Star, right? Like what's your due north, right? And put a pole from your head down to your feet and just be aligned with that piece and know and that be your compass, right? So that when the storm comes, you're not pushed one way or the other and you can stand. Kind of like the tree analogy that you use that I've used before also, you know, the the palm tree sways in it. So it was a very powerful moment because I certainly would have said, not thinking anything else would have said happiness. But I do think that it is, you guys are right and it is peace. And I love that. And I love that there were so many poignant moments throughout your recovery where it all really came down to the experience of people caring about people. And people, you know, we live in this interpersonal world. And so when they were reaching out to you and connecting with you and that connection, which oftentimes addicts don't have connections with other people, they're connected to their substance. I want to take one step backwards, though. Can you tell our listeners, what were your addictions? What was the thing that was your connection? What got you into Hanley and what got you into this place of finding your peace? So just let everybody know, I was listening to the introductions. I don't want to try to win anything here, but Arizona State University <laughs> it is the number one party <laughs> school when I was growing up. And that's why I went there. Playboy and Penthouse Magazine voted number one, and it was. And we dominate. So I have done every upper laugher, screamer, downer you can think of. But in the end, it was a lot of the pharmaceutical pills. Mm-hmm. So Xanax, Ambien to sleep, Percocet or Oxycontin or Darvocet before I train. Um, sometimes amphetamines to stay up or ephedrine. They used to have ephedrine, this thing that yeah. was before my workouts. But still, my number one baba was alcohol. You know, I still love to drink. And I would actually use all these other substances, kind of like whack-a-mole. Like when my drinking was kind of crazy, I would stop the drinking, but raise the Xanax. And then the Xanax was too much. So I'd whack that one. And the drinking would come back up. And I'd whack that one. And then the Darvocet would pop up. And I'd whack that one. So at the end, you know, you could basically say I was a junkie. And to the listeners out there, there's no exaggeration here. We're not using poetic license, if you will. When I read the book, I was really, really just eyes wide open to that exact point. The amount of drugs and alcohol, while at the same time being such an exercise enthusiast. I read there were days you were running 10, 12, 14 miles. And I like to think of myself as an exercise enthusiast. And in a way, I was chuckling a little bit to myself saying, oh my God, I have two drinks. And the next morning, I'm like, eh, I'm not going to the gym. You didn't miss a beat, Adam. And I don't know, is that the mentality of an addict that no matter how hungover, no matter how tired, no matter how sore their body is, you just keep at it and you push through and you have this literal Superman mentality. I know you say you thought of yourself as this self-proclaimed Superman. Speak to that I, a little bit. I want to say yes, but what I had to learn in recovery is that not everyone is like that. Mm-hmm. So I thought everyone was, just so you know. And I had to learn the hard way that no, some people are lazy. and some people, So what that is, is an extreme. I'm an extremist as well. And my circle tends to be extreme. 
if they're doing yeah. stunts or if they're doing extreme music or if they're doing extreme, you know, they start a protein bar company. Like every the ones I'm surrounding myself with, they're extreme. If they're, you know, a superhero in a movie, these are extreme guys that drank and drugged to calm that shit down. But then we did that extreme as well. So to answer it, no. There's extremism and then there's alcoholism and addiction. And you could be extreme without having the disease. Okay. Okay. I think that's important to mention. And I wonder though, even though you're doing so remarkably well now, I mean, you're 15 years sober. So if we can just take a minute to just say, we want to marvel in that because that is certainly a huge accomplishment. And I drink on a Saturday and then I say, so, well, it's still the weekend, Sunday, I'll have a drink Monday, I'll start the diet on Monday, or I won't drink on Monday. The next thing I know, it's Tuesday afternoon, and I want to have a drink. So I want you to know that while I would never disrespect the disease, my hat tips to you for living in a world where there is so much noise and static and interruption of this quote unquote, peace, that to be able to find peace in a in a very loud, noisy, chaotic world, I think is remarkable. If there's anything else we can get out of this, which I know we're just kind of touching the surface here, I think it's important that we all, whether we're an addict or not, sometimes really do struggle finding peace. And Adam, the clients that you coach and the men and women that you mentor, are they all in recovery? Or is it any walks of life people that you feel that you connect with that you want to help dig out of whatever they're in? Yeah, it's all walks of life. What happened was I realized that my journey in recovery and my journey in the family business and my journey becoming my own man was actually very stereotypical of the hero's journey from Joseph. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that unique. It was unique with my personality and the people in it, but it wasn't that unique. And I'm a Superman guy. So what I did was I take people through their hero's journey is what I really do. Many of them do come to me because of alcoholism addiction, but sometimes it's unhealthy dependencies or it's insecurities, fears, blocks, blocks with money, blocks with relationships, blocks with communication. So when you said there's strength in numbers, I mean, I know no one can see this, but the the symbol to my coaching is the Superman S symbol with a circle. We all used to hold Mm, a circle strength. So what I did was I I took the strength in numbers and I put it within the symbol, right? I love it. Because that's who I am. I'd love to be him, but Mm. I'm not. So I'm this other version. So I walk with all walks of life because somewhere deep down inside, there's a deep-rooted fear. Mm-hmm. And somewhere deep, deep, deep down inside in every man, woman, and child is this idea that they're here to do something great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just try to help to remove it. Lori, I know you want to jump in, but I just want to do a quick follow-up to that. Being sure. this... um having this excessive personality, right? And doing everything to the extreme that you mentioned. Do you... Think and Dr. Boca, I want you to jump in from the psychology on this. Do you think having an extreme personality and then that then translates into this addiction for you? Do you think it made it that much harder to recover versus just a regular Tom, Dick, or Harry that chose their vice to be drugs or alcohol, but didn't have an extreme personality and all these other, as you call it, this hero complex? Do you understand what I'm saying with that, Dr. Boca? It goes both ways. I think on the one hand, it can be a problem. But in Adam's situation, I think it's what saved him. And again, I don't want to speak for you, Adam. This is just my take on it. 
is that when Adam set his mind to do something, he was fucking going to do it. Even when he misstepped or backfired or went to extreme or transferred the addiction to working out or to something else, he was determined to be the he was going to be perfect at figuring Mm. out what it was that he needed to do to get through this. So I do think that it can hurt people sometimes because I think people chase this perfectionism and then they do transfer the addiction onto something else that looks more socially appropriate. But when that was confronted to Adam or Adam faced that, he was able to see it. And so I think for Adam, and again, I don't want to speak for you, Adam, but I'm impressed with the the willingness for you to be introspective, to listen to people, to open your mind up. And I think that that stemmed from your desire to people, please, which is not necessarily a strength, but it allowed you the lack of resistance eventually. But also this pull, as you've said, for spirituality and this desire for more. So again, I don't want to speak for you and I'd love to hear what you have to say, but that was kind of my take on it. I think that was perfect. I think that's exactly right. It's a gift to have it, but it needs to be channeled in the right ways in the right direction. Right. So, Laura, you you know, you nailed it. You know. Okay, Adam, you can leave now then. I'll just <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just ask Lori the question. She, she's hitting it out of the park, right? I, I would love, <laughs> listen, if, if there was look, it's it's my story, right? And Lori knows me well. But yeah. if there was something that I disagreed with. No, but I love that she really, yeah, again, maybe she also has a leg up because she is the expert in the room here, which is a good time to point out to the listeners this, even though this is a real heavy duty, it doesn't get more real of a story than Adam Jablin's Lotsaholic that he's been so gracious to share with us today on Unpolished Therapy. But the therapy piece from Dr. Boca, we want to protect her license. So please know today, this really is for entertainment purposes. And we're really wanting to just share Adam's story. And if we can touch one person, and if Adam can help one person with the wisdom that he now has in hindsight, then it's a morning well done. Thank you, Rach. I appreciate you wanting to keep my license going. But what Adam's saying is so important. And I think this translates to our listeners and to a lot of the topics that we've talked about. Some strengths, when done in excess, become weaknesses, Mm. right? And Rach, you've talked a lot over the course of our time together of being in the extremes, right? And I always say moderation, 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 and finding that balance. And this is just another example. But it does lead me to a question, Adam, that this one's a challenge for me as a clinician. I was actually trained, and I think I'm open to all theoretical models and stuff, but I was actually trained coincidentally in moderation, which was a new school, a new school of thought when I was in graduate school 20 years ago. And I struggled with it because I do think that addiction and alcoholism and drug use, there is a component of it that from the disease model where you know, we abstain. And that is it. It is a drug for us. It is something that we cannot touch. It is not possible. Now, have I had patients who have done moderation? Yes, I have. And they've done it successfully. I, though, embrace abstinence because more times than not, there are consequences associated with the drinking and the drug use. And therefore, it is not good for us. We should not have it. That being said, where I really struggle, I can embrace both and work with patients in both of those. What I really struggle with is when I have a patient who has been sober for seven, eight, nine years. And I'll give you a case in point. I have somebody that I worked with who was addicted to pain medication, Oxycontin or one of those, and seven years sober and had surgery. And the doctors knew about the addiction. They gave a a regulated amount, but they took more, 
right? They took one or two more pills because it felt good. And like, yeah, maybe there was pain. Maybe there wasn't. It was like stress. But according to AA and abstinence, he just lost his seven years of sobriety. And the shame and self-loathing that was put on him was so deep that it kind of set a path for a possible significant relapse. So how do you, as a person who's gone through it, and I know believe so passionately about abstinence, how do we reconcile and speak to that piece if there is a relapse kind of out of our control, but not really out of our control because it's never really out of our control when we're making decisions about us? How do we not have to live in that shame? And how do we not descend down all the way back to becoming an addict again or falling down the mountain and having to climb all the way back up? It's a great question, Lori. So one thing I do tell anybody that I work with or is listening is, is that's you know, my recovery is my choice. So for me, I can't play with any substances. Mm-hmm. I personally cannot. Um, for me, it would send me into a full relapse. Right. So that is a personal choice, you know, that needs to be set up front. Somebody that has had a slip or a relapse, it's important to feel the pain and not use your amount of years as some sort of gold medal or some sort of prize that you realize like, okay, like, um, I've done this. Mm-hmm. I've done it before. And I'm going to do it again. Not like, oh, I lost my seven years. That thought right there will send you back. Yeah. Using it. Right? The idea is to go, oh, it was a beautiful seven years. I fell off the wagon. I realized, but let's take that, whatever it is, the shame, the guilt, the pain to relaunch this. To, to reattack it, to rework. So it's the same thing if anyone's ever been very fit and they gain a lot of weight. And it's really the same thing. Like you, you are going to have to go back in the gym and you're not going to look good. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if you deal with it and you deal with how you feel and you deal with that pain, now you have something to work with. So it's truly a mindset. And it's actually for some people even probably a benefit because they're going to have to surrender what other people are thinking, maybe even for the first time. Right. And you're absolutely right in relapse prevention. And we talk about falling down the mountain, picking yourself back up right where you fall, because the climb up is easier than falling all the way back down and starting all over. So I appreciate that take. And the mindset is oftentimes the hardest thing to change. It's that I've never relapsed on alcohol and drugs, but I've had emotional relapses. Sure. It's not like I got clean and sober and like every word I said, it was eloquent and everything was peaceful. And I've never had my temper come out. Like I, you know, emotional sobriety and recovery from alcoholism addiction are two totally separate things. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Hello. (laughs) I mean, I could say that I'm trying to get through emotional sobriety myself. So I'm glad you brought that up because we aren't perfect. And I think every day, is a brand new start. And you get that chance to wake up, breathe in the fresh air, do your morning meditation, and whatever your rituals, quote unquote, are that keep you on the straight and narrow. Earlier, you said whether you win the lottery, okay, you don't have to pop a bottle of champagne. Or if God forbid, a family member or a loved one is ill or passes away, you don't have to pop a bottle of Xanax. Adam, in your life, as, as wonderful as it is now, there's got to be strife and struggle and triggers and things of that nature. How do you get through your day in and day out? You're a father, you're a person in the community who you still do have this, if anything, now I would think this image to uphold even more than ever, because now your story is out there. 
So what are your coping mechanisms? That's an interesting choice of words. I don't find that I have an image though. That's good. That's, I'm glad you said that. I'll clarify what I mean by that. I have to stick with the basics. And I know that sounds really boring, but the basics are what keep you in the game. It really is. So if it's everyday prayer, everyday meditation, everyday some journaling, everyday some introspection, everyday moving my body in some sort. Sometimes it's extreme, sometimes it's not. Doing one random act of kindness, perhaps maybe even making a 12-step meeting. You know, I mean, I don't want to bring that into this, but there are things that I do every day that keep me really, really centered and peaceful. That doesn't mean that I'm always peaceful throughout the day, but I can find my center again. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean I'm happy. Remember, there's a difference between happiness and peace. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't mean I'm happy, but I can get through a divorce. Mm -hmm. I can get through traumas. I can get through arguments. I can get through separations. I can get, and I can do it with my head held high. Mm. Bravo. And I love that. I mean, that's such you know, it goes back to that conversation that you had with Ron, right? That was it Ron? John, sorry. Father, no, so, no, Father Ron. No, but it wasn't with Father Ron. It was with oh, wait, John. about happiness, happiness and peace. And peace. It was with John. That, that was with John. Okay, like I, I'm, I'm not so good with names or faces, but I got the gist, right? But that whole conversation about the happiness and peace, you can have peace in your life and not be happy. And I think that's such a life lesson that everybody needs to understand. They don't have to go hands in hand. And I think when we can feel peace, we understand that, right? It keeps us grounded. So let me ask you this, kind of on the heels of all of this, what is the hardest part of staying sober? Well, that is a good question. I have to say, when you surrender the way I did, you know, so think about that. I'm not fighting anymore. Mm-hmm. I surrendered. I gave up. I would have to say the hardest times I've ever had with the idea of drinking are only in the good times. Really? Oh, yeah. Only wow. when when bad times come, when hard times come, it's very easy to double down on your spirituality and really work a program of recovery and really enhance yourself. But when you're on the beach and you're with your friends and everyone's having a margarita or a glass of wine, da, 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 da. Tortuga. Right, tor- <laughs> right, Tortuga, right. It's, it's like, oh, I'm already feeling great. But how could I get like, because that's that extreme thing. How mm-hmm. this is, it can't get any better. But what if I, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So those were the tricky times. And those were the times that I actually had to, what some people would say, work their program and make the phone calls and pray in a bathroom, and do the things that I didn't want to do mm-hmm. because I, I wanted to act like I had, I had all the answers and I didn't. I want to go back to something and I want to talk a little bit more about surrendering because in the book, you said it so beautifully. And before when you said you bring it back to basics, it's something that you wrote and it doesn't get more basic. And I say that as a compliment, okay? We're talking about surrender. And to the listeners out there, there was a part in the book that Adam talks about. He was asked to write a letter to his daughter. I'm like going to cry as you're even talking about it. Yeah. And it it really moved me to my core. And I'm pretty sure Dr. Boca was touched beyond. And for the listeners, I don't want to be too long-winded, but the task at hand that Adam was given was to write a letter to his daughter 20 years later. And one letter would be presented as if he was fully sober and had gone through rehab successfully and his sobriety was was part of his world. And the other letter had to be written as if he had it and he was still using. And 
And the internal dialogue, Adam, that you talked about in the book that you were having and hemming and hawing and and I guess that angel devil back and forth with yourself was something that was so personal to me because in my own life with my own experiences and I guess to the listeners I, I would imagine we do Adam say a lot on this broadcast that if we think it probably other people think it as well that whatever that devil is or whatever that vice is that's keeping you up at four o'clock in the morning that you're struggling with internally is loud and it eats at you and you continued to write these letters and the struggle you had. And and I think it was right at the point when you realized initially you had gone into the recovery program for what you thought was only going to be a 10-day stint. But in writing the letter and hemming and hawing in your own mind, you realized, whoa, I need to stay longer and I need to see this through for the full 28 days. And when you were finally honest with yourself, knowing that you needed to do this to to do the work and you called your wife, you wrote, I would like to share this if I can with the listeners. This was on page 223 in Adam Jablin's book, Lotsaholic. He writes, What a ride. I stared at the ceiling. My eyelids got heavy. My body went numb. I passed out cold and got my first good night's sleep in years. And again, in the simplest terms, when you finally realized that you needed to surrender and you wanted to surrender, talk about finding peace. I can't think of anything more peaceful than that. Yeah, that was the moment. I mean, that was truly a unique feeling. First off, when, you, when you've been taking Ambien and alcohol and drugs that put the way I have, and you could finally fall asleep like a normal person, I can't, I can't even tell you. It's like ecstasy. But there is, there is something internal that was happening to me. And those two letters to my daughter, that's an exercise I give to my clients now. Yeah. It, it really shifted my thinking into what it could look like one beautiful road, one amazing where I'm super dad and I'm there for everything and cheerleading and dance and you know and she's the star of the movie and then mm-hmm. she moves back and I'm that dad in the background, right? I could be that guy or I could just really run amok mm-hmm. and embarrass her and not show up and make her ashamed of me and embarrassed of me and make her feel small and, and you know, just set her up for failure and, and just hurt her in so many different ways. And for someone like me that loves so much, I needed something a little more external, yeah. like my daughter, to really kind of push me. Mm, yeah, I think that's such a power. I mean, I was blown away by this exercise and it was so powerful. And it often gets us outside of ourselves to see the impact of what we're having and doing on other people and gives us a purpose right? What is our purpose going to look like? And it was, I mean, I was so touched, so, so touched by that. Um, Adam, I mean, there's so many questions that I have. Um, And I I guess for me, I kind of always go back to the relationship piece of it. And, you know, there were so many people in your life that made an impact, but I was also so impacted by how many of your close influential people didn't make it, that you've lost along the way. And I know you alluded to it a few minutes ago that it's not usually in the down times. It's when, you know, that you want the drink. But what do you say to yourself that you've actually made it and that you've lost all of these people who you worked so hard with that helped motivate you to get you out 
of the space you were in. What is that like for you? And how do you cope with that? I have extreme gratitude for the lessons and the friendship that they gave me and the sadness. Yeah. That, you know, it doesn't, it's sad because we, you, you get used to hearing the deaths. It's very yeah. strange how comfortable you get mm. with hearing these friends of yours that you cared about that they decide to not live this way, you start realizing that you're the rare one. Yeah. And that's more normal. But I try to, with every person I help, and every day that I'm sober, and anytime I reach out my hand to, to pay homage to them and to honor them and to, you know, to have their memory stay with me. Because in my opinion, even though I can't see them, they're here with me right now. You know, yeah. so is my grandma, who I call Gaga. Like, I have a whole army with me that you can't see, but they're there. Adam, let me touch on that a little bit because I was also moved a lot by the relationship you had with your grandmother. And family is family and you can't pick them. But when you get a good egg, you know, you want to hold on to that. And it radiated through the pages, the relationship that the two of you had. The love she had for you unequivocally was unconditional. Do you think on some level she had any idea that you were struggling the way that you were? Or it was completely something that you masked because of your love for her too and wanting to live up to those expectations? Oh, she knew. I think she Mm -hmm. knew. And I really believe that everything that happened with her, her dying in my arms. I'll tell you, I've never felt crazier than I did in rehab. You know, mm. I never felt crazier because I could feel her. I can hear her like she was right there. It makes you feel nuts. Mm. Absolutely. Like, am I going crazy? Mm. You know what I mean? You got to remember, I'm behind four walls. I'm painting pictures. I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, oh, look, today I'm happy. I'm supposed to make a happy face. Today I'm sad. I'm making a sad face. So I'm going to feed the turtles. Like, I thought I was going nuts. Mm-hmm. But presence was with me. And I do think she knew. And I do think her death was the catalyst that really pushed me into wanting me to be clean and sober. And I wonder too, as unpolished as this may sound, I wonder if almost her life was a sacrifice to get you on the straight and narrow. And, you know, you talk about feeling that visceral feeling being when you were, you were in recovery, you couldn't mask it anymore. You couldn't numb the pain. It would imagine as though prior to that, life was muted for you. But to now touch and feel and to have every one of those senses heightened, you know, that's such a beautiful thing to think back of all the years that you were just probably glazed over and you didn't even realize. It's like if someone needs glasses or contact lenses, but they never put them in and they're just living life through a haze, they don't even realize how beautiful life is and the colors and what it feels like to really feel and live authentically. Let me build a bridge to what you said with the one time with spirituality and religion. You know, my experience in in everything that you read and everything we're discussing, this was me being reborn. And I don't mm. mean this. Mm-hmm. But think about what I'm saying here. Like it's all one thing. Mm. All one thing. You know, religion is trying to explain how to live spiritually through a certain lens. Spirituality can give religion a really wonderful context. They don't have to be independent. Mm-hmm. They could be congruent. And I'm not trying to push people towards religion, but it's so easy to point at religion and say where it's wrong. 
but it's the same thing in, in recovery. I could, for, for every person I show you that's like me, I could show you somebody that built a halfway house that's literally just taking people's lives and, and sure. patient doctoring and brokering. And, and I could show you the United States government. Like it's not Biden and it's not Trump. And it's not, you know I mean, it's the people within it. You know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with the United States government. There's nothing wrong with the Catholic church. There's nothing wrong with the temple. There's nothing wrong with your know, rehab centers. It's the people within it. Mm, yeah. that make it toxic. You know what I'm saying here? So building a bridge to what you're saying, the spirituality, the religion, my God, it all came together in one thing into a rebirth. Mm-hmm. Do you want to share or would you share, I should say, the story that also touched Dr. Broca and I about your grandfather, who was such a pillar in the community and the work that he had done and was being honored in the Jewish religion, but what happened with the Pope? Can you share that story a little oh bit? Oh my God. Yay. Oh yeah. That that's was my crazy. That yeah, was one of my yeah, favorite parts of the, the book. Picture. I can show you guys the pictures in the video. It's insane. It's so crazy. my grandfather was a very, very holy man, a mason, like very, basically he's what people are today back then, which was like a real groundbreaking kind of guy. You know what I mean? He was like a mm-hmm. Russell Brand. He was just very dynamic, but knew Judaism through and through. And he lit the light at Yad Vashem. So I picked wow. my grandfather lighting the light at Yad Vashem and they gave him a special stone from the Wailing Wall. Mm. Magnificent from the Wailing Wall. And long story short, they go to Rome to get it blessed by the Pope and the Pope, <laughs> the Pope is doing his thing, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Everyone's in the, you know, in the yard. Yeah. And, it. and the Pope, uh, and you can research this, by the way. It's really well documented. And the Pope asks my grandfather if he wants to come out and and bless the people. And my grandfather says to him, like, you know, you're holiest. I'm not of your same faith. And he says, I don't know anybody that can't use a blessing from Jesus. Yeah, I love so, that. So my grandfather comes out there. He's got, he puts a yarmulke on and he does the, you know, the, this, the Vulcan Star Trek thing. with, <laughs> And he's davening and doing love right? that. And the Pope is doing his thing with the cross. And it was a really, really special moment. So, yeah, that was my great grandfather. Yeah, it's the best. It is so amazing, but it does go back to what I was saying before. It's the religious piece of this. Like, it doesn't matter, right? No. If you're Jewish or not Jewish, if you, you know, don't believe in religion or whatever, it's coming together as a group and sharing and supporting each other. And we can put aside our differences. So I guess I have so many questions and I'm mindful of our time on air. And so I'm going to go to quicker answers. But this one, I just ask you, in your coaching, yeah. Do you focus on groups since they're so powerful? Or if you don't, where do you find group fulfillment, I guess, outside of just AA? Like, was your life group-oriented prior to? Or has group become something that you learned to appreciate while you were in recovery? And do you incorporate anything with groups in your personal life, if not in your professional life? I feel like you just lobbed the ball for me right I now. I did. <laughs> because... Uh, I am starting a group coaching, which is, I'm really excited about. I'm really excited about it. In the beginning, I never even thought I'd be one of those, somebody that did that because I love the one-on-one interaction so much. Um, But it was time to grow. It was time to incorporate more people together. And yeah, I I love the power in a group, but I also do love the power in individuality. For me, it's healthy to know when to have alone time, Mm -hmm. to pull it back when I need to kind of be in the fortress of solitude and then when to be amongst my brothers and sisters out there. So for me, it's that balance. It really, right. 
And I love that. I, I'm always a proponent of balance on everything. No extremes here. Okay. So it's been several years since you hit sobriety and have gotten there. You wrote the book back in that time period. So we're looking back 15-ish years. Even though you wrote the book more recently, it's that time period. So where are you today in your life? Tell us what you're doing. Tell us about your relationships. Tell us about what you've learned, your struggles, all of that stuff. So in the book, you see me, and I could say this, that I become my own man. I find my own way of life. And I don't have to compete as a quarterback against my dad being Tom Brady and as mm-hmm. a quarterback my grandfather being Joe Montana. But I actually come in as a completely different sport, like Phil Jackson. And I <laughs> learn how to run our family business spiritually. And I, all my men loved me and I loved all of our employees. And I knew when to call the triangle. And I knew when, who was Michael Jordan. I knew who was Scottie Pippen. I knew who was Kobe Bryant. I knew who was Shaquille O'Neal. And I, I knew how to run a company from a different set of eyes, not, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm mm-hmm. the man. And it, we flourished. And then we decided to sell the business a few years ago, which gave birth to the Hero Project. Wow. Um, I could say this is a blessing, but it had to go through a lot of pain. I am divorced. And mm-hmm. that relationship was a beautiful relationship. And it, I hope it served both of us. We have two beautiful mm-hmm. children. But there were a lot of changes, a lot, a lot of changes. And sometimes... Two people don't grow together. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much one person wants. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. And that was very humbling for me to learn, by the way. Yeah. Very yeah. humbling for me to learn because I actually learned, and I'm not putting myself on a pedestal or putting myself down, but I thought I was a people pleaser and I'm not, right? I learned that a people pleaser is if you're wearing a Yankee hat, but I like the Red Sox and I'm like, oh no, I love the Yankee. I love this. I love that. I love, I love your team. That's a people please. I have a Superman complex. Mm. I have an overextended sense of responsibility to everybody that yeah. doesn't belong to me. Yeah. It can yeah. look, it can look like people pleasing because I'm always showing up and I'm always being there. And I'm but it's not, it's that I don't realize where you start and I stop. Mm. Right. And I need to look that's what that I boundary. Yeah. Like mm. I like I can't put everybody on my fucking feet. Adam, I want to ask you a question, though, about specifically about that with having this Superman complex. And think about this. Doing for all because you want to show up and you want to be the man. And I don't know if this is conscious or not. Did you want to do it because you wanted the other person to say, oh, my God, thank you, thank you, thank you? Did you want to do it because it made you feel good? that mutual win or was it a combination of both? And Lori, maybe you talked to this too, again, from like the diagnosis standpoint of having a superhero complex. What was the driving force in that? Was it for you or the other person? It's intoxicating. There's something about when you step out and do something for somebody else that makes you feel really, really, really fucking good. And then if you start getting acknowledged for it, that actually starts really feeling good, which is yeah. why I always do one random act of kindness without telling somebody, or I'm always coaching somebody mm. for free, always, mm. no matter what, right? Mm. To pay it back. Yeah. But the whole thing is intoxicating. Yeah. It's an addiction in and of itself. Yeah. Look, I've said it before, like me helping people, it's extremely rewarding to me. Mm-hmm. There is something selfish that I get out of. Now, mm. it's a pure feeling. It's very, very pure. When I see somebody thriving 
and going beyond their expectations and breaking this old behavior and bullshit mindset and doing the things that they want to do, I get hot. Yeah, I love it. If they give me a little nod, that makes me feel good. But I'm not doing it for the nod. But then again, that not feels good. And it becomes yeah, a, a vicious cycle. Momentum, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it becomes this momentum. And I, I love it. I love it, which is why it's really healthy for me to have prayer, to have meditation, to have time by myself, to center, mm-hmm. to exercise, because I can get addicted to that. Yeah. Right? And you spoke about that even in the book about how you started taking on all of these speaking engagements uh, and then you weren't showing up to some of them and, and all of that. And look, I had emailed you and actually when I asked if you would be a guest on it, but when I finished the book and I said something about in parentheses, I said, is there anybody who doesn't really have an addiction of some sort, right? And it was kind of tongue in cheek because I'm cute and witty when I write emails and stuff. But I do believe that um, there are certain personality styles that if we went through who shows up with addictions and certain addictions, that we would see certain types of personality characteristics. And there is something about that intoxication that, you know, drives us to do certain things. And I always ask this question to to myself and people who, who argue this point. I don't know if there really is altruism. And if there is really altruism, it is such a small percentage of the people in this world who do it as defined by altruism, right? There is some reciprocity in a lot of the good deeds that people do. And anything, again, in an extreme can become an addiction. So that's why I say I'm not sure, based on that intoxication, if there really is anybody in this world who doesn't have an addiction, we've just kind of channeled it into something that's more socially acceptable. I don't know if you have an opinion about that or not. It's one of my deep thoughts for the day, but... I have a major opinion. But it's more of like a thought than an opinion or a soliloquy or, right? Let's hear it. So let's say about spirituality and let's go back to the religion, right? And you bring it all back into, right? So let's really take a look at this. There's one thing that majority of religions have come to agree on, which is there's a oneness. There's a mm-hmm. one, one God. There's a oneness to all of it. And Jesus who was a Jew from Nazareth. Okay, so let's not, not go into this story or that story. Or mm-hmm. You have a star and you have a cross. You know, if you want to say he's the Messiah, or you want to say he's the one of the greatest prophets. I don't really, it's, it's up to you. I don't really care. I said the two most com- important commandments is love God with all your heart, might, and soul, which is from the Torah. So he's repeating the Torah. And love thy brother as thyself. I mean, if you hate yourself, you will treat your brother and your sister like that. Mm-hmm. If you don't respect yourself, you will not respect others. If you like blah, 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 right? So love other people as you love me. You have to love yourself and, and then give it to other people. Mm-hmm. And so what we're saying is that is all, it's all one. It's all one. Yeah. It, it is. There's a oneness to it. It is. Adam, on page 175, going deeper, you write, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having human experiences. So I wonder, you know, again, the the whole spirituality piece is such a key element in keeping you on track, it sounds like, and what you then evoke out to your clients and the people that you mentor. And I think it's amazing. I really do. I think it's fabulous. So I kind of want to take a step back for one second. I I love hearing the story. I love 
seeing the end product of who you are. You really are changing the lives of so many people through the Hero Project and putting yourself out there in the book. I mean, we didn't even talk about how the book was received by people. And I can tell you personally, I thought it was amazing. And it was such a a great read. And I was like cheering you along the entire way. But is there anything that we didn't get a chance to ask you today? Is there anything that you want to share with our listeners about anything, what you're doing now, your journey, anything that we didn't ask you? No, I just think that for anybody that's listening to us, three of us, is that to take a chance and to take a risk like you guys have done with the podcast. And and the podcast is going to be a launching pad for whatever else you guys put out there. If it's talks, if it's books, if it's, you know, who knows where you guys are going to make it. But most of the people that I deal with on an everyday basis, they're drowned in the monotony of this program of, of like what they think their life is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I was that person. Mm-hmm. And I drowned that with alcohol and drugs, but there was something inside of me that was dying to come out. So like, you know, seriously, like flick your tits, grab your balls, whatever, but like take a fucking chance. Mm. You know what I mean? And don't worry about what everyone else is going to say because they're talking shit anyway. Yeah. I always use the expression, it's none of your business what people think about you. And if we're going to make it up, let's make up that they think that you are the greatest fucking thing in the world because you're making it up anyway and you're going to feel a shit ton better if you're thinking something positive. So who cares what people are thinking? Let's just live our life and do what we got to do. There is this thing, it's for me, and I'm not proud of this thing in, in my mind of how it works. But I remember when a couple of people, when I came out and I started doing this, like, oh, you want to be the next Tony fucking Robbins? And, right? and like kind of giving me like a little, mm. right? And when those people became my clients, they didn't know it. They didn't know it. But I came back into my place being like, yeah, motherfucker. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Like, I'm that too. Yeah. yeah. Good you for know you. What I mean? I'm mm. that. You know what I mean? Like, like they didn't know it because now I'm helping. Right. But inside, I was like, I'm fucking that too. So like, You got to take a chance. Yeah, Yeah. you can if you will. Yeah. Adam, let me ask you this final thought. I can't even tell you how thrilled I am with the trajectory of of how your life has turned out. And I can't wait to see what's more for you because this is really just a beginning. I can see this beginning again. And as you mentioned, this rebirth and sky is the limit. But do you ever think if you didn't take that chance and you didn't listen to your family and that intervention didn't happen, what do you think would have happened? Truly, would you still be alive today? No, there's no chance I would still be alive. Wow. But I don't think it. So I don't think about it. But I can tell you guys, my, the Hanley Center would be happy to show you the documentation. I still have the highest toxicity level that they've ever seen. Wow. Yeah. Really? that close to death because wow. I was mixing so much. See, mm-hmm. if you're just a heroin addict and you're taking pure heroin, yeah. okay, you're taking crack and smoking crack or doing cocaine, okay, even cocaine and alcohol, okay, right? I was taking Percocet, Oxycontin, yeah. Narcos, Ambien, Xanax, drinking. I didn't eat normal food. So everything was manufactured yep. synthetic from GNC, uh, right? Protein supplements, da, 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 like Like my body was nothing but synthetic toxic shit that it couldn't break down. Yeah, I was reading this and I was like, holy shit, this guy is lucky he didn't die of a heart attack at any given moment. 
any of your organs could have shut down. I mean, it was frightening to me. I mean, I I can't handle a quarter of a Xanax without falling asleep. And I'm just like, whoa. And then running, like, like Rachel said early on. I mean, and for anybody who doesn't know Adam, not only does he have his shit together right now, you know, is helping other people, but he has stayed true to course with all of the things that he, I don't want to say preaches, but all of the things that came out of Hanley, which was the prayer and the meditation and all that. But holy fuck, is he not in the best shape of pretty much anyone that I know personally? I mean, he is like abs of fucking steel, right? So there, there is a part where I think we always have that little piece left in us, right? That is working on ourselves all the time. And I'm hoping that that isn't driven to the extreme, Adam, but it is amazing because if you looked at Adam, you would have never known that he has gone through the journey that he has gone through and hit the bottoms that he has hit. So it has been awesome. Adam, I can't say thank you enough. Your time and your stories and your candidness is really something that we are grateful beyond words. And I would imagine our listeners too are incredibly humbled by your story. If anyone wants to reach out and get a copy of your book, Lots of Holic, please share with us how can they find it? How can they find you? I would gather you'll have a lot more followers and listeners after today's episode for sure. Oh, thank you guys. Well, you can follow me, um, Adam Jablin on Facebook, Adam Jablin on Instagram. I now have a Hero Project Facebook group, which I would love for people to join because we, we get into it like this. You know, we all hold a space for one another and really it's there to support where I So there's an answer for the group. I was just going to say, there's your group. There you no, go. And yeah, I wasn't thinking on the fly there, right? So there's the group. And you can find me on LinkedIn. It's really all under my name, but it's there to be of service and to help people and to uplift them. Fantastic. Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, Lori, thank you for sharing Adam with me and sharing him with our audience. And this has certainly been value add. Um, the corner of audacity and advice. Adam, you always have a spot in our parking lot here. We always say you were a friend of Lori's. Now I hope I can say that you are a friend of mine and certainly you are forever a friend of the show. Uh, anyone, if you have questions, comments, concerns for Adam, you know how to reach him. We'll link everything at the bottom of our information page on today's episode. But you can also find Dr. Boca and I at unpolishedtherapy at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook as well at unpolishedtherapy and of course on Twitter at untherapy. Uh, so on behalf of Dr. Boca and myself, Adam, again, we thank you so much for your time today. To the listeners out there, we wish you well. Have a wonderful week. Grab a copy for sure of Adam Jablin's book, Lots of Holic. Uh, there's a lot of great meat and potatoes in there. And his story is one that you'll certainly want to read. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. And we'll see you next time on Unpolished Therapy. Great sesh, girls. Hey, everyone, like what you heard? Then don't miss out on what comes next. Subscribe now and please give the girls a five-star rating. Learn more at www.unpolishedtherapy.com. Find and like them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll see you next week when Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca ditch the couch, grab the mic, and break down all the wreckage. <laughs>